Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We're trying to figure out, okay, what do we want to do in this new podcast space? What story do we want to tell? And it just so happened that Harple Studios was being torn down. And that got us talking about, oh, wow, there was nothing there before she built Harpo Studios there. That revitalized the whole area. And then somebody remembered, oh, you know, it's the 30th anniversary of the national launch of that show. It's like, oh, wait, this is a Chicago story. We should be telling this story. Why are we not telling this story? Let's tell this story. What does it take to tell the story of Oprah Winfrey and the TV talk show that changed the world? And how do you get Oprah Winfrey to take your call? I'm Sarah Gonzalez, and this is Work It, the podcast. It's a selection of talks from the Work It Festival for Women in Audio. And in this episode, we've got Jen White and Trisha Bobeda on the making of Making Oprah. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. Okay, I'm Jen White, the host of Making Oprah. This is... This is my colleague, Trisha Bobita. Hello, everybody. And Trisha works in our digital space at BEZ. But before we get started, I just need a picture of y'all. So everybody give like big Oprah waves. Yay! Awesome. All right. So this is how I make it. And I should say, to be fair, it should be called How We Make It because uh, we are part of a team at our station, and I'm very fortunate that we have a great team of just incredible folks at WBEZ who all come together to make things like making Oprah. Uh, So what we want to do in this session is tell you a little bit about how we made this podcast and some of the lessons we learned during the process of making it. First question, why did we do it? So WBEZ a few years ago, made the decision to expand in certain ways. They wanted to expand the newsroom. They also wanted to expand what we were doing in the podcasting space. What they realized is that that required people, right? It's like, oh yeah, we want to do more podcasting. Well, maybe you should get some people in there who don't already have jobs they're committed (laughs) to. So I was one of the new hires. I was hired in a dual role as um, a host a co-host of a show, a daily show that we do at the station, and also to work on special projects. And that special project, lucky me, ended up being Making Oprah. We also hired a full-time producer, Colin McNulty, who's the producer on Making Oprah. He was doing documentary podcasts for the BBC before we snatched him away. Trisha, you want to talk about what was happening on the other side of things? Sure. So we were also building out our digital team, our membership team, our development team. We've seen a a ton of really exciting growth at the radio station in Chicago and really are sort of at that moment where, you know, this is the home of This American Life and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But Making Oprah was really the first time in a while that we'd stepped out with a brand new thing made from sort of raw materials in a while. So it was really exciting for everybody in the building to get to be a part of launching a new show. And what we figured out early on as we were thinking about why we're making this thing, is that we wanted to build on the strengths that were already inherent in the station. We're good at telling Chicago stories. Um, We want to tell stories about Chicago that have national appeal. In this case, it actually ended up having international appeal. We underestimated Oprah's significance to the world. Lucky us again. Um, Don't know how we did that, but we did. Um, And then we also wanted to tell a very specific story about people making something. And I'll get a little more into that as we go along. So we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we want to do in this new podcast space? What story do we want to tell? And it just so happened that Harple Studios was being torn down. And that got us talking about, oh, wow, there was nothing there before she built Harpo Studios there. That revitalized the whole area. And then somebody remembered oh, you know, it's the 30th anniversary of the national launch of that show. It's like, oh, wait, this is a Chicago story. We should be telling this story. Why are we not telling this story? Let's tell this story. It was a very organic process of us coming to it, and it just so happened that I had 
some personal connection to it. Not like we were buddies or anything, but <laughs> in my personal life, I had a connection to the development of that show. So we started doing interviews in mid-July, pre-interviews. We were fortunate in that a lot of the producers and executive producers were still in the Chicago area. So we were able to tap into this resource that was that was already there. A lot of people who had been there from the beginning, who built their whole careers with that show were there. And because Harpo Studios was coming down, they were in this really emotional space, right? About this place where they'd spend, spent so many of their years and they wanted to talk. I mean, we would get people in the studio and I was like, I think we're going to do 45 minutes, an hour and a half later. We're like, okay. So, which was great. Like, that's great when people want to come and pour their hearts out to you. Um, we started the editing process in about mid-August. And I actually should produce go for it. There we go. And about mid-August, we didn't know until early August that we had Oprah. We didn't know that. And so we had a plan A and a plan sad. And plan A was, we get Oprah, oh my God. And plan sad was, we don't have Oprah, but we still have all of these people who made this thing. And since our goal was never to make a, a biography of Oprah Winfrey, and there was enough archival footage out there of her talking, we figured we can still make this work. But of course, we know how we want to do it, and it, we want her to be in it. Um, we got our first Oprah interview on August 29th. Um, we were supposed to have 30 minutes with her. She gave us an hour and 15. We wrapped that interview. I know, right? Exactly. But wait, there's more. We wrap that interview and she says, I can see what you're trying to do and you're going to need more time. Contact my people and set up another interview. So we ended up with about two and a half hours of tape with her, which was far beyond anything we expected. I also like that she sort of, the story goes, sort of produced the room. Oh, she oh. Oh, gosh, yeah, best story ever. So Colin and I are in the green room at the Ellen DeGeneres show. Because that's where you get Oprah to talk to you is backstage at Ellen. Right, and so, you know, there's like Channing Tatum and Simone Biles, and we're like, can we eat the snacks? Because I think those are like artisanal chips, but we're scared to eat them. So we set up the room, and we're like, okay, that's the most comfortable chair. We want to make sure she's comfortable. We set up the mics built around her being comfortable. She walks in the room by herself, no entourage or anything, and she goes oh, you all can't do it this way. The sound is going to be horrible. And she just starts moving microphones around. <laughs> when Oprah starts moving microphones around, you take a step back and say, carry on. And so she sort of produced the space in the way, which I love because that means she, she's a producer. She understands. And so um, she set up the room how she thought it would work best. And she was right. And we were like, thank you. Um, and we moved on. October 21st, we had a, an initial first episode completed. We wanted to get feedback about how it was working. We sent it out to some people we trust at This American Life. Uh, Curious City, which is another project we do out of WBEZ, got feedback and were like, oh, we didn't get it right. So we rejiggered that first episode, which then created a, a framework for episodes two and three. And our goal was to release have everything released, not the extras, but those three hours released by Thanksgiving. The thinking being, people are stuck in the car, people are in their kitchens cooking with family and they need an escape. We should give them something to listen to. And if we have everything out by Thanksgiving, and it actually worked out really well, that, that ended up being a great plan. Lots of tweets about people listening in their cars and things like that. I would say too, real quick about mm -hmm. that moment where you say, who's going to hear this first roughest draft? Oh, yeah. This American Life, obviously, WBEZ is, is grateful to always have sort of a connection with. And then also for us, the Curious City was really important because they know our Chicago audience maybe right. better than anyone. They focus really on how to engage with our city and our community. And so, you know, look for people who you just trust as storytellers, mm -hmm. but also people to listen who know your audience that yeah. you want to reach. Like, look for both when you're trying to do that. Yep. So these are just some early <laughs> examples that you can see of how we were thinking. When we started this project with the understanding that we were going to do more expansion in the podcast space, we got to a point where we realized if we do this the right way, we can build a brand that we can return to. So on the right hand of the screen, um, you can see some of the, the title options that were thrown out there, including Opropolis. <laughs> that was not my idea. There are um, no bad ideas in brainstorming, Jen. Indeed, indeed. You get a car, live your best life. You get a car, right. <laughs> But we landed on making because you change the second word in that brand and it can be about anything. It can be about a person. It can be about a place. It can be about a thing. And we're actually working on the second documentary series 
under the making umbrella that we plan to release early next year, probably in January. I can't tell you what it's about yet. It's another Chicago story. We're waiting for the big interview. Fingers crossed. I was like, Mama, say I'm going to say we're going to get this person so that we get them. Um, I'll tell that story later. But um, yeah, so this just gives you a little bit of information about how we were thinking about you know, how we wanted to, to shape it and some of the things that we'd need moving forward. And then you can see here, this is where we really got into the process of figuring out what is it going to take to tell this story? Can we, do we need to tell it in 30-minute blocks? Can we tell it in an hour-long block? And we looked at the, sort of the, the, the scope of the story and figured out that there were these beats that made sense for a turn or a new chapter and we landed on this idea of three hours. A lot of people ask me, what's the right length for a podcast? Should it be 30 minutes? Should it be 20 minutes? Should it be an hour? And my answer is always whatever the content requires. Um, in this case, the content required three hour-long episodes. And the new project we're working on, it's a little more dense, a little more complex. We're not, we can't do an hour. It needs to be 25 to 30 minutes for people to be able to absorb it. So just think about what your content requires and allow that to drive your time. Trisha? Yeah, absolutely. And I think too that, that this sort of shaping, if folks saw uh, Molly Webster yesterday um, talking about how Radiolab does this, I would say that you know one of the things we'd be happy to hear questions about is sort of uh, how do you do that if you're a slightly scrappier operation mm -hmm. than Radiolab? Because they're sort of the gold platinum, you know, astronomically awesome standard. And we're a much smaller team at WBEZ, but we're trying to build the systems that allow us to do this ambitious work. And so it really is about whiteboarding and note cards and figuring it out with whatever your team looks like, whether that's you and one other person or you and a sort of an army. And for figuring it out on the front end, not the back end. Yes. Setting realistic goals and deadlines and benchmarks for yourself, not getting all of your tape and being like, what do we do with it now? <laughs> Try to figure out as much of that at the front end as you can. It'll make your back end a lot easier. Um, and I should say for this, for the Oprah, making Oprah team, it was um, Colin McNulty, the producer, and me. We were the two primaries. Uh, Joel uh, Meyer, who is the EP of Talk at WBEZ, Ben Calhoun, who was at the time the VP, what was his title? VP of Content, who has since returned to This American Life. To This Life. American Life. That was the core team. We also had uh, Joe Dassault, who was working on the very back tail end of uh, sound production, and we had an intern. We had an intern who spent six months Looking watching footage of Oprah Winfrey. Wow. Like, that was her... <laughs> That was her job. She was, she, by the time, by the time it was done, poor Annie, she was like, I've had enough. But, um, but it was a small team, you know, it was a small team. So we were realistic about what we could do, making sure we're not trying to do a weekly podcast forever. This is a new space for us. The way we're doing this is new for us. Let's set reasonable guidelines for ourselves and see how we work within those parameters. Uh, project timeline. This is so. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Really, we know that we want to release, have everything out there by Thanksgiving. We want to have these three hours by Thanksgiving. So, how do we back into a timeline that makes sense? Working from that September, uh, the I'm sorry, the November 22nd date, and this is what it ended up looking like. We know we need to have the structure done by this time. We need to have the first edit by this time. The second edit, the mix, final release. So we did this at the very, like as soon as we had all of our tape and knew what we, what we had, this was the calendar we created for ourselves so that we ended up at that November deadline that we wanted. We had more time for the extras on the other side of things because um, that was sort of our time in the sandbox. Uh, but for this part of it, laying, laying out a, a timeline for yourself like this is, is incredibly helpful. Do you want to talk about what was happening in the digital side at this point? So, you know, when you're a part of an organization or even if you're doing this solo, you know, this is how you get the audio product done. But obviously conversations about, oh, what's the logo look like? What does the text look like that surrounds us online? What is the digital treatment for each of these episodes going to be? What's the marketing strategy for both the release, our organic stuff we want to do on Facebook? Who's the list of influencers that we think maybe would care that somebody has done a podcast about Oprah. You're making all those lists sort of, you know, I mean, for us, ideally, at least two to three months out, we're having those conversations, not just with the editorial team, but bringing every department or every smart person we can in to help us think about those things too. So that when we hit that first episode release date, or you hit that trailer in the feed date, 
you have that plan in place as well. Mm-hmm. So once we, ooh, ooh, wait, where did I go? Hey, come back. There it goes. Uh, this is what we call the arranged master. And this is the point where we have all of our audio, all of our interviews edited down to the pieces we are going to use that we intend to use all laid out, not in the order we plan to use it, but not broken down by episode. And this was the fun part. This was where Colin, Joel, Ben, and I would go into a studio, huge sheets of white paper, episode one, episode two, episode three, each yellow sticky note represents a beat, okay? Working in this way, rather than just trying to edit at your desk or hold it in your brain, having a visual that you can manipulate physically is so helpful. So if you realize the turn from beat three to four isn't working, well, is it just that those things need to be flipped? Does beat four need to come out and does that need to be replaced with something else? Okay, well, write down what you think that is, put it up there and see if it works then. So we did this with every single episode. And it, and it just clarified our process, our editing process so much because we worked it out before we actually started cutting things together. So this to me is one of the most useful tools, especially if you're working in longer form documentary work. Get in a room with the people who, who you trust, who maybe people who haven't even heard what you're trying to do and see if it makes sense to them. Because you get into these, into these projects And at a certain point, you stop hearing things. You know what I mean? You just stop hearing it. You know the shorthand in your head because you've been listening to everything so far. You fill in the blanks because you know what somebody else said, but it's not necessarily in the tape you're using. So get people in the room with you who can listen and be like, I have no idea how that connection happened. None at all. And you can do this with a rough script, which is what we we did. We sort of talked through the episode. Okay. And this was what episode one looked like when it was all said and done. We use um, a software called Vegas, which is actually a film editing software that we just use the audio module for. I cannot tell you why that is. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I cannot tell you why we use Sony Vegas instead of something else. But it, I mean, it functions the same way. It's a multi-track editing yeah. software. I, I was trained on Audition, which is what I love and I miss it terribly. But um, <laughs> this, is what, this is what we use now. And that's what a, what a completed episode looked like. And here is the website that Trisha built. So uh, WBEZ had, was just in the process around the same time that the show was coming together of launching a new app and website as well. And so what we really wanted to do with this new show is, is sort of state clearly what the goals are. So we are a news organization. We are a, a you know multi-platform content organization. Um, but for this particular project, the most important goal for us was listens. It's about ears. It's about downloads. It's about subscribers for a brand new show. And so the primary focus was all gearing all that promotion towards listening and subscription. Um, We could have chosen to, and we might in the future for a different kind of project, try to build a companion that's a very visual documentary to go with something like this. Um, In this particular instance, there were some challenges when it came to finding images that felt right for each of these in terms of licensing and rights. So this is the kind of thing that, again, the sooner you think, start thinking about it, what is the iconic image that you can use to represent each episode uh, as you're sharing? And then hopefully more than one, because the way you're going to be sharing that on social is going to be incredibly visual. So lining that stuff up ahead of time. Um, Folks will know that when you're trying to do promotion in uh, Apple Podcasts, there's very specific guidelines and rules about uh, what those images can look like. They have a very specific aesthetic, and you also can't put an image credit on uh, a sort of promotional image in Apple, which means that you have to have licensing for that image that doesn't require you to credit Harpo Studios or Getty or whoever owns that image. These are little things that can trip you up. Um, when you're starting a new project. And so just think about what that art is going to be. Even if you, you know, what's your minimally viable, you know, set of images that you're going to have? Are you going to hire an illustrator to get around all that? Are you going to um, make a video? Are you going to, you know, like, what are you going to do? Figure it out way at the front end so that you're not doing what we quite honestly did on this project was get like a little deadline crashy near the end to figure it out. I've seen every image that Getty has of Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) All of them. Um... All of them. <laughs> Let me say it again. All of them. But, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that, again, you're, you want the editorial team and 
and the folks who are going to be marketing what you're doing. And if you're the same person, you, you want to be thinking about those things from both perspectives. Because if we had just thought about it from an editorial perspective, we can put that this photo belongs to Getty and it's fine, but we can't use that same image in Apple. There's different needs depending on where that has to go. Okay. So we probably, if you heard the podcast, remember so, this moment. News. Yes. That's my producer, Colin. He'd spent a couple of months trying to book one particular interview for this project. And finally, he had some news. Uh, we have Oprah. Okay, my. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. I just spoke to her assistant. Uh-huh. And Oprah can do this coming Monday <laughs> in L.A. So we're going to meet Oprah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. Oh so that's happening. God. Yay! Oh, my God! <laughs> Colin! Okay, I'm, hold on. I've got to get my... I've got to center, Jennifer. <laughs> center yourself. So one of the questions we really had to ask ourselves during this process was how much... I know, right? I just cut my hair, too, y'all. And that's the new dress I bought. Um, we had to figure out how much I was going to be a character. And because the work I do on a day-to-day basis, I work, I'm a journalist, you know, and it's not comfortable for me to be a character in the story. It's not about me. So the degree to which I was visible was not really comfortable for me at first because I was more visible when we first started the project. After we did our first edit, we got feedback and realized that I didn't need to be as visible as I was, right? It became too much about me, which was not attached to our initial plan for the podcast was was to tell the podcast about people making things. What we got really strategic about was using me in places where I could be a proxy for the audience. So if you land that big interview, how would you respond? That's a great place where I can be a proxy for the audience. What do you do, right? You buy a new dress, you get the pedicure, you call your mama, right? That's those are the things you do. At the end explaining why she was important That was another place where I could speak and be a proxy for the audience. So if you're doing this kind of work and you're trying to figure out how much to insert yourself, ask yourself that question. Am I putting myself in because I'm making it about me? Or am I putting myself in because this is a good place where I can serve as a proxy for people who are listening? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the other thing, and this is something you brought up, Tricia, was about Recording everything. Right. So you only have the ability to make that choice as you're editing if you record everything as it's happening. So we would call that transparent production. We would call that, you know, Colin making sure that he tells Jen about landing Oprah on mic making sure that they're in a place where that can be recorded. And so I think that, you know, again, having a hundred hours of tape can feel daunting, but you're you're going to want the option to use that mm-hmm. in the final mix. And you only have that option if you record everything. Mm-hmm. There were very few places where we included um, sort of vanity pieces. And I would say the only place for me was including the phone call with my mother at the end after the credits. But the reason we included that was because it felt like something anybody would do. But also when I moved to Chicago a couple of years ago, my mother told me, you're going to meet Oprah. And I said, well, mom, she doesn't live there anymore. <laughs> she's in L.A., she's in Atlanta, she's all over doing things. And she said, I just have a feeling. So that was the, the one little piece I left in there as a nod to that. Um, that was purely personal, but felt appropriate. So what I want to get into now are some of the mantras that emerged during the podcast, but that I think also leaves us with some lessons to take forward in our work. And the first one... Is this? Oprah always said it's a horse race. Don't look at what everyone else is doing. And we really we're in a horse race. When you're a horse in a race, you run your own look race. Look straight ahead, because those who turn around to see what the other horses are doing usually you fall off. Sideways, you don't look back, you don't look at the other horses, you just run your race. You do you. Let them do them. We do us. You know, sort of before it was a famous saying of you do you, let your own, you know, blah, blah. Almost without exception, every producer we talked to said some version of this. And I think it's appropriate for what we're doing now because there is this desire to duplicate success. A true crime podcast comes out and everybody shuffles in that direction because that must be the thing that, that works. Um, a comedy podcast comes out and it's like, oh, that must be the thing that works. 
I was in your session this morning and you were talking about how people were trying to drive you towards doing another, another round. And you're like, that's not me. You have to figure out where either your personal strengths or the strength of your organization is already apparent and build on that. Don't try to duplicate the success you see other people or other organizations doing. Look at what you're already doing well and how that can transition into work in this space. Do you want to add anything? Amen. Okay. <laughs> Here's the next one. According to Gary Zukov, our intention, what we intend towards others, is the single most powerful energy in our lives. Here's the intention. There's the effect. You exploit the world, and you experience being exploited. In this appearance on the show, Gary Zukov demonstrates the principle of intention to Oprah using one of those contraptions with the metal balls that click back and forth. Do you see? I, I see. Wherever the intent, whoever sets the intention experiences the effects of that intention. And you can never have an intention without an effect. Precisely. Yes. So when we start understanding, working, fully understanding that done. principle, that's the biggest aha of my life, actually. Aha. That's the way life works. Okay. When we started working on the podcast, we, we set a very clear thesis for ourselves. We wanted to tell a story about how these people made this media juggernaut. We were not trying to tell the story of Oprah's childhood in Mississippi and her trauma. We were not trying to tell the story of Oprah's life. We weren't doing an analysis of television and consumerism. We wanted to tell this one simple story that was very complex, but simple. So whenever we felt ourselves tumbling down a rabbit hole, which happened several times, we pulled back and said, does it answer this original thesis we set for ourselves? When you're working on a new project, have a really clear intention, thesis, idea, whatever, a question you're trying to answer. So when you feel yourself getting lost, when you feel yourself tumbling down that rabbit hole, you can go back, check in and say, am I speaking to that? And if you're not, you need to redirect. It's one of, the, one of the best things we did in this process. However, we ended up with these gems that couldn't make it into those three hours that we still wanted to use. The episode about hair, politics, Donahue's interview, which we were all like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. But we couldn't use them in the three hours. But there was a space for us to use them in. And that was when we did the podcast extras. So you don't have to throw everything out. You may need to reutilize it and reshape it and use it in a different way, but make sure you're answering that, that original question you're trying to, trying to answer. Make a promise to yourself and your audience and keep it. Yeah. And, and that's at the macro level. That's what is the story we're trying to tell. And it's at the micro level of why am I interviewing this person? Do I need one single piece of information from them? Do I need an emotional response from them? Know what that is. I mean, honestly, I feel like around the office, we all say, what is the intention yes. of this all the time now? All the time. All the time. Next one. I mean, Oprah would preach on a daily basis. There are only two emotions, love or fear. And we weren't feeling the fear. All right. I know you're thinking, what? It's the critique. Most of us are doing projects that we're very passionate about. We're very attached to. They are our, our babies. If you are too afraid to go into critique with your project, it probably won't end up being as good as it could be. You have two choices going into that process. You can go to it in fear, which means you're, you're, you're bracing yourself for the worst, you're holding on, which means you're probably not listening, or you can go into it with a spirit of appreciation and love. Like, I love my project enough <laughs> to open it up to this process. So I really want to encourage you to connect with people you trust, voices you trust, not because they're going to be like, girl, that is amazing, but because they will tell you the truth and be willing to put your project through that process of critique. You will be a better host, producer, editor for it, and your project will be better for it as well. Okay? Everybody knows that there's a time that comes in your life 
when where you are is no longer where you're supposed to be. I probably got more messages about that quote. In anything else in the podcast, people talked about that. We've all heard the saying probably, sometimes you have to kill your darlings. We all get that moment, that tape, that, that, that little, oh, that little treatment that we are just like, oh, that is so hot. I love it. And sometimes it does not work. And you have to be willing to let it go. When we were interviewing Oprah about the times when the show delved into politics, we ended up with this piece of tape where she talked about a conversation she had with President Obama. And he says to her, do what you need to protect your brand. America will have the president it deserves. And then she said it again, America will have the president it deserves. We taped that interview in August prior to the election. We entered the editing process for that episode after the election. When we did that interview with her after she said that, she kind of paused and she said, will you please be careful with that because it could be taken out of context and exploited. When people say things on tape, we, we, you know, you said it on an open mic. But once we entered the editing process, we had to make some editorial decisions about how to treat that piece of tape. Because post-election, it felt very different, right? We went around and 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 around about whether or not to include the second the second time she said it, not when she said it within the context of her conversation with President Obama. And it actually just sort of got us to a standstill. Like we were just parked (laughs) at that moment. And we got to the point where we're like, we're probably never going to agree on whether or not to use this, but we've gotten to a place in our process where it has stopped us dead in our tracks. We need to let this go. We got to let it go. And so we, we let it go. We let that second mention go. I was of the mind that out of the context in which it was originally delivered, it wasn't fair to use it. It was, it was delivered in one context. And so are we making a commentary using this person's words that they did not intend? Because how could they when they said it this many months prior to the election? You're going to have those moments in your work. You're going to have those, those conflicts. You're going to have those things you're so attached to that people say, not so much. You have to know when it's time to let go of those things and move ahead. Final little bit here. The connection is deep because I intended it to be. That's it. We're all working in this space because we want to connect with, with other people. We want to connect people to one another, to new ideas, to new ways of looking at the world, to thinking about moving through the world. That's why we're doing this. But what I want to remind you is that we're also at this really interesting time when all media is viewed as journalism, regardless of whether you intend it to be or not. So be very careful with how you treat this space. Be very respectful of the platform you have access to. Use it for good. And, and, and be mindful that even, again, if you're not viewing yourself as a journalist, that doesn't give you an excuse not to do excellent work, responsible work. Before we wrap up here, do you have anything to add? I would just say that there's a a sticky note on my desk um, that has three eyes on it. And there's a speech that Edward R. Murrow gave like half a century ago about the responsibility and role of radio and television. And he said that when we have this technology, what it should be for is to combat ignorance, intolerance, and indifference. And those are the three eyes. And I like to add one more to podcasting because I think that there is now maybe in some ways more than ever a sense of isolation Mm -hmm. that comes from the way we consume media, the way we interact with each other has become sort of less about voices, less about personal interaction. So ignorance, intolerance, indifference, and isolation, your podcast, your audio product, your Instagram thing, whatever you're doing, Mm -hmm. use it to combat those four things. Yeah, Uh, that's, yeah, that's great. Um, quick show of hands, and then we're going to go to questions. 
How many people here have been told at some point in their work that they don't have the voice to do what they're doing? I see one hand. Just a few, that's all, just a few hands. You don't have the voice, this isn't the space for you. I just want to encourage you to fall in love with your own voice. There was a time in my career when I got that message as well, and I had to fall in love with my own voice. And if I do nothing else in my career other than help women fall in love with their own voices, then that's enough for me. If you got to sing to yourself in the shower, read poetry out loud, talk to yourself in the mirror, whatever it is, fall in love with your own voice. You have something to say and it's worth saying. Okay? So let's... There's a mic there for questions if you have questions for us. At, oh, at, <laughs> oh, this is sad. At J, at J White Pub Radio, I think it is. At J White. This is so, ooh, that's horrible. Um, yes, I think it's at J White Pub Radio. Yep, that's it. Hey. And, hi. I'm Theo. Um, I am such a fan of what you guys made. I just think from the way you've used your voice to the stories that you decided to tell to the scoring to the story selection. I mean, it just it just worked so beautifully, I thought. Um, the question I have is how you decided in the decades long, I mean, you had so many stories you could tell mm -hmm. and you decided so specifically, I mean, you focused on like white supremacists and the mics she used on stage. Mm -hmm. Like those are such particular choices. Mm -hmm. How did you find those, you know, six or seven things you focused on? Oh, and the idea of Susie. I mean, I think the thing about Susie is like yeah. the most brilliant yeah. thing, right? You think of your listener, your audience, your viewer, and that is what you make. Mm -hmm. That is how you make mm -hmm. what you make. But anyway, so my question is, how did you narrow it down? So part of it emerged just as we did the interviews. Yeah. The producers started to tell their own story and you notice these trends or these certain stories that emerge when you're talking to everybody who was there mm. at the time. They all marked these specific turning points in the show's history. When we when we went down and did the story about the all-white county, when yeah. we had the white supremacists on the show, when yeah. that woman was ambushed on the show, yeah. we let them tell it and then we just went in and said, oh wait, all of these things match up. It was the same yeah. thing with the horse the horse race. Yeah. They all said yeah. it. Yeah. We didn't have to find it. Huh. They they told us. And if you're if you're listening and you're letting people talk, right. people tell their own stories most of the time. Right. Right? right. For the audience thing, that was one of Colin's darlings. Because as a producer, the idea of how yeah. you mic the audience, and we had a lot more footage. We found <laughs> the, the audio tech for the show, and he gave us like all the crap. He gave us so much stuff that he held on to from the show. I don't know that he was supposed to, but he did. Um, <laughs> that we could have done a whole episode just on crowd reactions, how the audience sounded, but it was really important to Colin to yeah. include that. But I thought it was important because at that point in the documentary, it really started being about the audience and how the audience was reacting. Yeah. But yeah. at the core, the core answer to your question yeah. is really listening to what people are saying yeah. and finding those moments where it's like, oh wait, they're all talking about this one thing. Yeah. This was important. Yeah. It was, cool. People making things, how did they make it? Right. They told us. Right. They told us. I think that's one of the things that Colin McNulty is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant audio producer. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons he's very uh, adamant about being like up close and personal with all the tape on a project like that is, you know, the point of hearing that run your own race montage is not just the sound design of layering something. Mm -hmm. It's it's you're making an editorial decision mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. say this is a theme, this is an mm -hmm. amplification of an idea, right? Mm -hmm. So if you if you have, you know, too many people with too many hands and different bits of tape, if you're not up close to it, you might not see that moment. Yeah. You know, like that one was pretty obvious, but like those are the kind of moments that I think a producer is looking for yeah. is how to sort of use sound design to punctuate, how to use sound design to punctuate something that rings true in the like totality of your 200 hours of tape. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Hi. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, like... Um, since you had such a finite amount of time with Oprah and her interview wasn't like all the way at the end of when mm -hmm. the entire structure of the story was laid out, yeah. uh, how you decided where you needed her voice and which questions that you should ask her. Right. So especially when we were 
under the impression that we were only getting 30 minutes with her. We looked at the tape we had. We looked at the story as it was laid out and said, where where is it most important to have her talk about this thing? Okay, we've got this archival footage that we can use here so she can fill in that blank in that way for us there. And we just mapped it out that way. So we had a list. We went into that first interview with a list of about 10 questions. Like, these are the 10 things we need to get her to talk about. But then she started talking and then she kept talking. We were like, well, let's get some more and let's get some more. But that's what we did. We, we looked at the places where the producers were already telling the story. And it's like, where can she punctuate something powerfully for us? And those were the questions we decided on. But we had enough tape again that if we hadn't gotten the interview with her, we still could have done the documentary and it would have been, it would have been fine. It wouldn't have been the same, but it would have been fine. Hi, I'm Hi. Lauren from KLW, Connection Point. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for making this because I listened to this as a primer on, on how to make, <laughs> like, how to make a show, and it was a meta how to make a show. So it was like great on so many levels. So I'm and I'm happy you guys are here. Um, so my question is, I was I'm really interested in the way that you laid out the beats mm-hmm. for the story and where in the process that took place. Whether you kind of did a version before you went in to talk with everyone and then a version after you talked with everyone, um, just in terms of developing the arc of the story, which sure. is the hardest part of what we do in some ways. It's easy to talk to people, but then right. how do you tell that story? So the step before, this was post all of the interviews with the exception of Oprah. So we had an understanding of the audio that connected to, like the things that connected to one another. And we had sort of this loose idea of a script, like this is roughly what we need to talk from, from beat to beat. And that was where we entered into this process. So when we were in the studio, what we would do is talk through the beat. Okay, this is what's happening in this beat and play the audio that accompanied that beat. This is what's happening in this beat. Play the audio that accompanies that beat. So that's where this process came, came into play. But honestly, when we on the project we're working on now, we've done a version of this already because the story is so much denser. So we did a version of this where we, in a much more broad fashion, mapped out the roughly six episodes we think we're going to end up with, with rough beats. So you can use this at any point in your process and return to it at any point in your process. I think the, the important thing to remember is, is the power the visual gives you to better imagine what you're trying to shape. So use it at any point that it makes sense for you. That's where we use it in this one. We're going to use it at least twice in the current project we're working on. Thank you. Uh-huh. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm a Chicago girl, now living in L.A., so oh, hey. No, no, no. Um, also a former Harponian. Right. Oh. So, <laughs> um, I just wanted to give you kudos for the way that you handled this story. Thank you. Um, just thank you for doing this. Awesome, thank awesome, you. awesome work. Um, but my question is, how were you able to use the archive footage? Um, was that like a fair use thing? Did you mm-hmm. know somebody that worked there? We, so, we talked with Harpo. Yeah. Yeah. At the, early on in the process, we contacted them because we knew we wanted her for the interview. But we were also like, look, we're doing this documentary that's going to be, we hope, the documentary mm-hmm. in audio about this show. You gay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they gave us they gave us access to quite a bit for the show, and some of it we were able to find on YouTube, and that was some fair use stuff. The only thing we were not able to get audio wise because it it has disappeared is the episode, the ambush episode, mm-hmm. where the mistress tells the wife that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't. It's just nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the only thing. But they were actually very generous cool. with with the tape. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Good yeah. work. Thank you. And thank and thank you for your work. <laughs> hi, hi. Um, I go by Barry. I run podcasts in color. Oh, um, oh hi. hi! I know you. <laughs> so I did just want to say thank you because you all searched the hashtags. I was like, I don't know if they're paying attention to the hashtag, yes. and I'm a hashtag person. Yes. But you all both were on the hashtag, like retweeting and interacting. So I just really want to say thank you because not many people put that much into social interactions. I'm all about social interactions and you know helping that grow podcast. Yeah. Not many people understand that and sharing and you know all the rest of it. So I do really appreciate that. And you I all appreciate take you. To, like, search it out and stuff. Like you were so. putting the word out there. I was like, thank <laughs> yes. you, Mary. And I mean, it's it's something that I'm still learning because y'all, I'm over. 40 and I'm, I'm very happy to be over 40 but like 
Twitter and limited characters. I'm like, that's not how I talk. Like, I just, I don't communicate that way. I'm a, I need more expansive space to communicate. Um, so I'm learning from people like you about how to, how to use that to, to my advantage, to our advantage organizationally. And, um, I've just been so appreciative of the love everybody has given us on this project. It's been, it's been really incredible. It's been really incredible. So hi. (laughs) Yes. I don't know if I'm a Harponian. Uh-huh. But you look, I know you. I've been on the Oprah show three times. I know you. Wow. Yes. My name is Saeed Yes, I know you. Man in the mirror. Man in the mirror. Yes, the writer. Yes, ma'am. Woo. The writer? The writer. I said the writer. The writer. No, that's not me. No, no, no. The writer. The writer. Well, so the that space when when they initially built the studio there, that area was just it was nothing there. It was really ragged. There were no buildings, and so a whole a whole business like block built up around Harpo once it was there. But they wanted to reutilize that space, and McDonald's wanted it. So that's what's going in there now as a new. I mean, it's it's such a specific space, right? It was a it was a television studio that was a television studio. And how do you reutilize that for something else, right? So they just tore it down and McDonald's is going up there. Oh my God, I'm just like, I, so when we were in the hall, I said, I know her, I know her. And I was looking at you and I was like, I know you. I know, I was like, I know you. You have an amazing voice. It is such a such an honor. It really is. I've learned so much from you today. I'm really, really glad I'm in this room. Likewise, likewise. Likewise. Oh my gosh. Yes. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Are you a Harponian? Oh, can. Sorry, guys. Can can you go to the mic? The They're mic? asking they if you can go yeah. to the mic. I'm not a Harponian, sadly. But one of the things that I've realized about what, when listening to this is I did not realize how much of the Oprah show like embedded itself in my DNA uh-huh. until I listened to it and I'm like, I know all of this. And yeah. I was like little, like a kid when I was watching it. And so mm-hmm. I'm interested with the feedback you got from the audience. First mm-hmm. of all, like what were some things that you heard that you didn't expect mm-hmm. or just the level? I just, what did you hear from people as far as things they remembered and that yeah. kind of stuff? So um, big things I heard, I didn't even really like Oprah, but I like this podcast. Oh. I was like, how do you not like Oprah, right? Like, how is that a thing? But that's a thing. Um, but the other things, I mean, the number of people who talked about how the show was a place and a time that they, they bonded with their mother. From, and I heard that from men and women. They'd come home from school and that was mom and daughter or mom and son time. And how that really shaped their identity in so many ways. Oprah was like big sister, auntie, babysitter, to a lot of people. There's a moment in the podcast where she said, I raised a generation of people. And I'm like, okay. But then it's like, oh, no way. Yeah. And people view her that way. See, exactly. Exactly. It's a really, and so that was a big thing that I heard from people was just how connected they felt to her and how integral she'd been in this really formative stage of life, right? When you're 12, 13, 14 years old, she was there. Yes, ma'am. I have an amazing Oprah story. <laughs> Tell oh, oh, the mic. Can you go to the mic? Can you go to the mic? Okay. And I think we've just got about, we've got like two minutes. So really okay. quickly, and then we can get to the last question. I was, I was uh, on the show a couple of times and then uh, Oprah would call me because I guess we were friends, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she called me and we were on the phone for like 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And then it was three o'clock. Mm-hmm. I said, girl, I got to go. <laughs> She said, why? I said, Oprah's on. Oh, and I'm on the phone with Oprah. It was insane. <laughs> that's, that's the power of yeah. her show. Yeah. That's what I said. Appointment <laughs> listening. Appointment <laughs> listening. I'm, I'm, not saying I'm, I'm not saying I'm Oprah, but occasionally I host a podcast called Nerdette. Occasionally I call my mother and she said, I have to call you back. I'm listening to Nerdette. Aww. There's something about it, man. Like the connection people make with your voice when you're doing this work in audio is really powerful. The connection is real. It's real. Thank y'all so This has been my favorite session by far. So thank you all. Um, so my question, and I said this to you when we were in the hallway, is mm-hmm. that when I when somebody in my feed said, oh, what? you got to listen to Making Oprah, I'm like, 
I pretty much know everything there is to know about both Oprah and the show. And so my question, and that's because so much content has already been made. Right. Including by Oprah herself. Mm -hmm. So for the final season of the show, Mm -hmm. they did a behind the scenes series. Mm -hmm. There was a DVD series I own. So (laughs) So my question was, how much of that if any, did you all actually consume to say, we want ours to be different from this? Did you look at everything else that had been made? Not really. That's amazing. Not really. I mean, the, again, this is the power of letting people tell their own stories. If you go into it saying, okay, what are we trying to avoid? Then you might like just run over something that is worth retelling, right? But if you let people tell their own stories, there's a power in that and people want to tell it. And if you and if you skip over those moments, you lose the emotion. You lose. It's like okay, well, we already know that happened. Well, we don't know how it happened to you, right? Sometimes our job, as all, all of the time, our jobs as hosts is to listen, 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 listen. That's the most important thing you can do when you're on that side of the mic. Listen and let people tell their own stories. Think about yourself as a guide not a director. Okay? Look at that gem. I love y'all. I just like uh, this, this energy, this space. I appreciate Do you, guys, you all Can you so guys believe much. I get to sit really close to this, yeah, this wisdom all the oh, time? <laughs> I think so they're giving exciting. us the wrap-up time. But before we go, I want to take a selfie with the whole room. Yeah. Will y'all do that? Yes. All right. Okay. So everybody stand up. Let's do it. and Trisha Bobeda speaking at the 2017 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Hahn, Mac Cosmetics, and thirdlove.com.